Thus, I'm, I'm certainly glad um, to see you. Well, as uh, many of you know, or some of you know, but if you don't know, I'm going to tell you now. Um, my family and I like to take trips in our motorhome. It's sort of the way we vacation, but I deliberately use the term trip for a few reasons. The first one being two adults, a dog, and four children under the age of 11 crammed into a vehicle in which we live and we move and we have our being while we're on our trip. And I can can confirm that oftentimes whining and complaining and crying and the occasional screaming is a regular feature of these excursions, though it's probably not in my interest to explain to you the ratio of the adults doing that to the children (laughs) at any given time. The second reason I call it a trip is because sometimes it's leisure and sometimes it's business. I'm a multi-vocational pastor. My job requires me to travel. When I can interleave our recreation with business, I do, and we go as a family. Um, And we're blessed to see some beautiful places and do some really fun things as a family. But I want to point you back to reason number one. We're all crammed in this small vehicle. And the third reason is it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of fun, and it's a blessing and a privilege to have the means of, to do it, but it's a lot to prepare and to manage along the way. I like to liken it to sailing a boat offshore or flying a, an airplane, if, if any of us do that. I don't fly an airplane. I'd like to. Um, but there's a lot to prepare and manage along the way, which can also make it very exhausting. And part of what leads to my exhaustion is this level of anxiety that I carry as we approach this vehicle and these trips. And my prevailing anxiety is this image of being stranded on the side of a road with some sort of problem with the vehicle that I'm incapable of fixing. Now, mind you, I'm not a mechanically inclined person. My other anxiety is experiencing some sort of catastrophic problem that prevents us from completing our journey. It's probably tied to some early childhood trauma associated with family trips to Tijuana as a kid when we lived in California. I don't have time to to digress there. but, But because of this anxiety that I carry, I am constantly evaluating and managing the various risks associated with these trips. And I'm doing everything that I can do as a human being on the front end to manage and prepare for every conceivable risk. I have every tool and every part that I'm possibly capable of using or needing, and I'm packing it with me to plan for every eventuality that I could hopefully extract myself from any situation. Well, we recently sized up to a much larger and much older vehicle. And so on a number of levels, these anxieties remain. But I was a Boy Scout growing up, and that Boy Scout motto, be prepared, right? Footnote, Sir uh, Robert Baden-Powell, 1907, the founder of the Boy Scouts, created that motto, be prepared. That's, that's served me well 
in my life. But if I engage in some very honest, heart-level introspection, the truth is, is that a big part of my anxiety stems from the fact that I do not want to be at the mercy of anybody. Fundamental to our human existence is our fleshly resistance to the idea of having depend on another for our salvation. Well, today marks the fourth week of Advent, as we heard this morning in our call to worship, and the theme of this fourth week is salvation. This season of Advent, which marks the beginning of the year on the church calendar, and it's in its traditional Practice Advent delineates a time of devotion and reflection and heart preparation, not only for celebrating the birth of Christ, Christmas, but also for the second coming of Christ as judge at the last day. And in the three previous Sundays here, we've heard the word of God proclaimed along the lines of the themes of hope and peace and joy Which leads us to our final theme of this week that we heard, salvation. And so that's the topic we're talking about this morning. Well, to be clear, some of the anxieties that we experience in this life, the fact that God has given us the ability to foresee potential problems and to think them through and even worry about them to the degree that it serves a useful purpose, there's nothing wrong with anticipating and preparing. But there is a deeper lie that relentlessly and surreptitiously attempts to work its way into the recesses of our hearts and of our flesh. And that bad news that we're so often tempted to believe is that we must try and try and try to save ourselves both physically, but more importantly, spiritually. It's the, it's the lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve in the garden. That we can't trust a good, loving, perfect God for our well-being and our salvation, both physically and spiritually, but that we have to take matters into our own hands. And so one of the beautiful things of the Advent season as we anticipate his coming and prepare our hearts, is the reminder that we are at the mercy of someone else. That our rescue, our salvation, is rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus proclaimed in his own ministry was that the Savior of the world was at hand, And the kingdom of God had come near in him, in himself. We see later in the narrative in Acts, the book of Acts chapter 4, that the apostles Peter and John on trial before the Jewish ruling council and high priests for performing miracles and healings and proclaiming Christ, they focused the good news in their defense of themselves this way. They say, there is salvation in no one else. 
God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Advent, it it calls us to stay focused on this gospel story and on Christ for the remainder of the Christian year. And so what does the anticipation of our salvation in Advent reveal to us? That's what we're going to talk briefly about this morning. Would you bow your head briefly with me in prayer? Father, would you graciously give us a clarity of heart and mind to hear the truth of your word this morning, to see our deep need for your Son as our Savior, and to submit to the leading of your Spirit to conform our will to your own. Amen. Well, our anchor point in Scripture this morning, as you heard read, was Luke from chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. I chose it because it's, it's, we see a people who are waiting expectantly for their own vision and their own version of who the Messiah would be. And John the Baptist is, is in the wilderness. He's, he's baptizing people as they come to him. And the people are wondering, is he the Messiah? And he reminds them and he reminds us that the true Savior and Judge is coming. Yet the central message of the Bible concerns the salvation of lost men and women. And so today I want to briefly talk about three principles from the whole of Scripture that can help illuminate our understanding of what salvation means, particularly in this Advent season as we look forward to celebrating the birth of our Savior in the first Advent as we expectantly and patiently and perseveringly live out our lives as we await his second coming. Well, that first principle this morning is that our salvation is a promise. You see, the the biblical concept of salvation that we see in the scriptures develops from the sense of physical rescue in the present life, i.e. deliverance from danger or crisis, It it develops from that idea to the idea of spiritual rescue, often associated with the afterlife, the forgiveness of sins, the eternal life, the things that we think of in the Christian context when we think about salvation. Well, in both the Old and the New Testament, God is preeminently portrayed as a God who saves And from the very beginning of the Bible, from the earliest chapters of Genesis, starting in chapter 3, to 66 books later at the end of Revelation, Scripture relates to us the grand story of how God has acted in grace to save his wayward image bearers. The entire story of the Bible is a story of God's saving grace to save you and I. From ourselves. The psalmist David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes in Psalm 68, he says, Our God is a God who saves. The sovereign Lord rescues us from death. And we see in the narrative of the story in the Old Testament the covenants that God makes with Noah and then Abraham. 
and then Moses, and then David. They're, they're all outworkings of God's promise in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where he makes this promise that this promised seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Scholars and theologians refer to this as the first gospel. In cursing the serpent for leading man and woman astray in the garden, God promises the serpent and all of humankind that a descendant of the woman will ultimately defeat the adversaries of God. The serpent in this story is an image of Satan and all of his followers, those who are opposed to the will and the purpose of God. And so God promises that that he's going to send someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent. That God's rescue plan will be enacted through the offspring of Eve. A promise realized in the birth of Jesus. Born of Mary, the wife of Joseph, a descendant of David. In both Testaments, we find the announcement that salvation has been provided by God. There's so many examples to point to. I'll point to to two major ones. In the Old Testament, in Exodus, in in the Exodus, rather, in in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God has brought about the physical deliverance of the nation of Israel, his chosen people, He's delivered them from their enslavement to Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh and and Egypt being a representation of the world, a godless world. And then in the New Testament, we see God's announcement that salvation has been provided by him. We see it at the cross. In Colossians chapter 1, God has reconciled all things to himself through the blood of Christ. Paul tells us. The New Testament affirms the Old Testament in that salvation belongs to God alone. But it does so with greater specificity. We see now the presence of God amongst humankind in the person of Jesus. In whom Paul tells us, Again, in the first chapter of Colossians, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Jesus is fully human and fully God. He is God who has condescended to earth to be amongst his people to save them from sin and from death. In the first chapter of Matthew's gospel, there's an account of the birth of Jesus, and we encounter this Advent name that we've heard repeatedly this morning, Emmanuel. It literally means God with us. And it signifies this momentous progress in the history of salvation and in the salvation story that's unfolding in the scriptures. In the new year, we're going to move into a sermon series on the book of Matthew. And I want, I hope that we can remember That this story starts here in these two verses where the angel tells Joseph and Mary in verses 21 through 23 of chapter 1 of Matthew. He he tells Joseph and Mary that 
that Mary's child is conceived of the Holy Spirit and that they are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name of Jesus being derived from the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which literally means salvation. Well, God himself in the person of Jesus affirms this. Jesus himself tells the crowds when they complained that he was lodging with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and dining with him. Jesus tells them that the purpose for the Son of Man's coming is to seek out and to save the lost. This principle is unchanging and true. Salvation is a promise, and God is faithful to see it to its completion in Christ. The first advent of Christ is the culmination of this whole story, which, which leads us to my second principle, the second principle, it's not mine, it's God's principle, revealed to us in Scripture, that our salvation is perfect. You see, salvation is this work of the triune God, and but it involves an authentic response from his image bearers as, as on the part of us as individuals. The Spirit prompts us to respond authentically to what God has done. You see, Scripture depicts God the Father as the, the ultimate source, planner, initiator, and perfecter of our salvation and our faith. Our salvation is perfect. It comes from a perfect God. There's nothing that you and I can add to it to make it any better, any more complete, any more valid. Writing to the church in Ephesus, Paul says this. If you have a Bible, you can and look in Ephesians chapter 1. If not, I'll read it for you. Starting in, in verse 3, verses 3 to 8, he says, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. It's perfect. It's complete. It's lacking nothing. Every spiritual blessing belongs to you and I in Christ. He continues, he says, Even as he, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. James confirms the same thing, that our salvation is perfect. It comes from God. It's perfected in Christ. God's given us our salvation freely. And he's done it through the one that he loves. James, the brother of Jesus, 
a brother who likely didn't believe Jesus was who he proclaimed himself to be and who he was while Jesus was alive, but came to recognize his half-brother as the true Christ after his death and resurrection. James confirms the same thing. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. At the cross, Christ restored all of humanity to a state of peace and wholeness. There's nothing that you and I did to earn it. And there's nothing that you and I can do to add to it. No matter how hard you and I might be tempted to try, we can't work out our salvation in this perfect sense. Christ the Son provided complete redemption for you and I through his obedient life and the blood that he shed for us on the cross. Paul tells his protege Timothy, he says there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. And to the church in Ephesus, Paul says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, as we heard earlier. And the author of Hebrews tells us that, that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, The covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, those were God's promises for his outworking of his salvation, but it's perfected in the new covenant. The author of Hebrews says that Christ is the mediator of this new covenant, and it's a better covenant enacted on better promises. It's an unconditional covenant. It requires nothing from you or I. The gospel depends on a God who does not depend on you or me or anyone else. Jesus says as much to his disciples in the upper room. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Our salvation is perfect in Christ. There's nothing you or I can do except to abide in him. And to bear fruit and to let the ongoing process of salvation do its work. Which leads me to this final principle. That salvation is a progression. We're saved by grace. God extending himself to us in relationship and and granting us the unmerited favor of our salvation. If, if you've assented to Christ appearing in human flesh and his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, then you are saved. Your name, the scriptures tell us, are written in the book of life. And Jesus himself assures those who believe in him. He says, I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. 
No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He tells his disciples in John's Gospel. But the Scriptures do reveal to us a progress of our salvation, as it were. Peter writes in the first chapter of his first epistle, he says, Since you've been born again, not of, imper- not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. What's lost on us as we read in English translation is the, is the tense of the verb being used there, this verb born, in this phrase born again. It's, it's a passive perfect participle, which as you look at it grammatically carries this connotation of, of ongoing action. That we receive passively, that, that this ongoing action of rebirth is that we are being transformed into his likeness. We call this in church circles the process of sanctification. It's related to our salvation. Paul writing to the church in Corinth says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, when we place our trust in Christ by the power of the Spirit, we're made holy in principle, in the eyes of God, that, that we're positionally sanctified by grace, is the phrase that theologians used. We're justified before God. He views us perfectly saved. He ver- views us unblemished, like Christ is unblemished. We're holy in principle, but our salvation is also a progression in that When we've placed our trust in Christ, the Spirit also makes us holy and godly in practice. That is, we're experientially sanctified in word and deed. That is part of the progress of our salvation. Part of the process of our sanctification is us living into this position of holiness that Christ provided for us. On the cross. Our faith, brothers and sisters, our salvation demands a response. If it's going to be proven as true. You see, as Christians, we're rightly entitled to claim salvation by our acceptance of Christ's work on the cross. It's a claim we're entitled to if we accept what Christ did for us. But our our salvation is really only true in fact. If through our words and our deeds we're repudiating our old nature and cultivating a new nature by yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit that God has given each of us. This, This close relationship, if you will, between justification and sanctification means that God not only declares repentant sinners righteous, but through the grace of the Spirit, He actually makes us righteous as we live it out in our lives. And so in this process, we're called to persevere 
the trials of life. Writing to a dispersed church that's suffering persecution, Peter reminds them that salvation is a promise that's perfect in Christ. But it's also a progression that requires our perseverance. Looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The promise of our salvation is revealed in God's great mercy. The promise of our salvation that God has proclaimed to his people from the beginning of human history in the garden as we see in the third chapter of Genesis. This promise comes true in God's mercy in the person of Christ. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the dead, from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you and me. Our salvation is perfect. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in a perfect place in heaven for you and for me who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The progress of our salvation. You and I, who by the power of God being guarded through our faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in its fullness of perfection at the last time. And in this He tells us we're to rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The promise of our salvation is revealed in God's great mercy. Our perfect salvation is the work of Christ. And our salvation is a progression in that we must persevere in our faith for our salvation to be revealed at the second advent. Where the genuineness of our faith will result in praise and glory and honor. Well, three brief applications as I bring this to a close. To remember and to walk and to love. We're called to remember the promise. The entire story, this this narrative of God's saving work in all of human history is God reminding us over and over again of what it is that he's promised us and what it is that he's calling us to. And so, friends, we have to remember the promise. It was interesting to me as I was checking my footnote on Sir Robert Baden-Powell and his motto for the Boy Scouts, Be Prepared. 
I was surprised to find he had a number of other quotes that he's known for. And, And one of those is, he says, In a difficult situation, one never failing guide is to ask yourself, what would Christ have done? We're called to remember the promise. And having prepared our hearts this Advent season, focusing on the promise of the first coming and reminding ourselves of the promise of the second coming, that we're called to remain focused on Christ for the remainder of the year. So we remember the promise and we walk with assurance, walking in the assurance of our salvation. As Christ assured his disciples that no one could snatch us from out of the hand of the Father. Walk in the assurance of our salvation and with the knowledge that our salvation is a progress. And then finally, to love without fear. Our our salvation is perfect in Christ. He is our peace. We can cast all of our anxieties and our fears upon him. and, And that frees us. To love God completely. To relate to him vulnerably. To love ourselves correctly and to love our neighbors compassionately and sacrificially. Well, last week I found myself captivated by a scene that was um, reported in the news. It was playing out uh, about 50 yards upriver from the top of the American Falls portion of Niagara Falls in New York. I don't know if if anyone else saw it, but a, a woman, slightly older than myself, had somehow driven her car into the river, and it floated downstream where it became lodged about 50 yards above the top of the falls. Water rushing over the vehicle. Law enforcement and firefighters standing on the shore unable to reach her. Well, as this scene plays out, a Coast Guard helicopter summoned from Detroit. It's about 200 miles away. That car probably sat in the river for hours before the Coast Guard arrived. And amid poor visibility and and icing conditions that that jeopardized the, the helicopter, this savior in the form of a... 22-year-old young man, a Coast Guard rescue swimmer, lowered 80 feet on a wire into the river, into the swift currents and cold water, and he pries open the door, and he's attempting to remove what ends up to be a woman from her car. And there's this remarkable photo, if I'd been more squared away, I'd have it for you this morning, but you could Google it. But there's this remarkable photo of of this 22-year-old Coast Guardsman, an an image of salvation in one sense. But sadly, in this case, the end result, it wasn't the saving of a life. It was a a removal of of a body, a lifeless body. In one sense, I think that they haven't determined how the woman got there or why, what her motive was, but perhaps 
people in desperate moments might think the only way they can save themselves is to do something drastic. And in other sense, um, we're all always operating in a way trying to save ourselves from something. But it's just a reminder to all of us that, that neither my detailed preparations or plans or our own wits as, as human beings nor a Coast Guard rescue swimmer is able to ultimately save us from all of our perils. But yet the creator who formed us and redeemed us has called us by name. It reminds me of this image from Isaiah chapter 43 where the prophet tells the Israelites, fear not, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name. His promise is that that the, the, the river will not flow over us. That when we experience evil and chaos and and the trials of life, he's with us. The waters of evil will not consume us, God tells us. The rivers will not flow over us. The flames will not burn us, is God's promise. He says there is one who has rescued us from evil. And this one raises the dead to life. This Savior raises the dead to life. An earthly Savior can only pull a lifeless body out of a car. But the Savior of the world raises the dead to life. The Lord Jesus is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And we can cast upon him all of the anxieties that motivate us to attempt to save ourselves. For we're a people of the truth. And we're the people of the God who saves. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Will eternal Father, strong to save. You sent your beloved Son to redeem us from sin and death and to make us heirs in him of everlasting life. So that when he comes again in power and great glory to judge the world at the second advent, we, we may without shame or fear rejoice to behold his appearing. Father, would you give us grace to cast away the works of darkness to put on the armor of light and to be sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And may we do so now in the time of this immortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came down from heaven to us in a great and gracious act of humility that in the last day when he returns to judge the living and the dead we may rise to our life immortal in our perfect salvation. And we pray all these things through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.